Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, controller. Are you ready to begin? All engines are started. That looks really good. So we'd like it to uh, stir up your cryo tank. Oh, wow, it's going up so slowly. The state of the space flyer during the flight is being observed with the help of radio, telemetric, and television devices. Station, this is Houston. Are you ready for the event? Yes, I'm all set here. Welcome to the April edition of Space Boffins with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. This month we'll fly through one of NASA's weirdest test facilities on a space sofa and hear how to pack an 86 square metre solar sail into a third of a shoebox. I'll also be reporting from NASA's science control room in Alabama and asking whether Tim Peake is really as nice as everyone makes out. Well, obviously he is, but... You well, know, really we'll, we'll got we'll your that. Later, yeah. We're recording this month at the Open University in Milton. Keynes in central England, where our guest is one of the lead scientists for Europe's latest mission to Mars, Dr Manish Patel. This is ExoMars 2016, a joint mission with Russia, which launched successfully on a proton rocket from Baikonur on March the 14th. ExoMars will arrive at the Red Planet in October and it consists of the Trace Gas Orbiter, which will sniff out methane and other gases in the atmosphere, and the Schiaparelli Lander. It's both a science mission and a technology demonstrator, as the lander will test a number of entry and descent technologies for the planned ExoMars 2018 mission, which includes a European-built rover. Now, there are two Russian and two European instruments on the Trace Gas Orbiter and manages the co-principal investigator for one of them. Now, it's called Nomad. I'm going to get you to say what Nomad means because no matter how many times I've written it, I can never remember it. I see. Yes, it, it, we spent a long time figuring out the name, the best name to give it. And Nomad stands for, it, it describes what it does on the tin. So it, it, it stands for Nadir and Occultation for Mars Discoveries. Now you say it's it does what it says on the tin, but that... <laughs> that's clear. No, not clear at all. <laughs> yeah, what do you actually mean by that? Uh, I said it did what it does in the tin, but not that it was clear. <laughs> so for a scientist, uh, I guess it makes sense, but maybe not for the general public. Um, it describes the the viewing geometry of of the instrument and how it's going to do its job. Essentially, it's going to look at nadir which means it's going to stare down in orbit. It's going to stare down at the surface of Mars and take a measurement that way. And occultation uh, means that it's going to look through the atmosphere at the sun, uh, at sunrise and sunset, and it's going to uh, measure the vertical profile that way. So it's kind of two different ways of looking at the atmosphere to figure out uh, what's there. And obviously the Mars discoveries are are discovering the, the components of the atmosphere. I love the fact that it's looking at Mars, Martian sunsets and and, and sunrise. And it's basically a a spectrometer, though, isn't it? Or several spectrometers. 
yeah, it's a suite of three spectrometers. And you're right, it's an absolutely uh, romantic mission. It's we're, we're going to Mars and we're going to go just watch sunrise and sunsets for the next couple of years. It, it's pretty. It's it's a nice way to spend to spend your science days if you like. Uh, we have a lot of Italians on the project, and you know they 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 like the romance of it all as well. <laughs> Yeah, so by looking at uh, the sunrise and sunset, you, you can see, you know, like on Earth, you can see the different colours of sunlight as, as the air as the air refracts different sunlights. So what we're doing is we're looking at the sunlight passing through the atmosphere and looking for absorption of specific wavelengths, specific colours um, over a wide range of wavelengths. And by looking at these absorption points, we can figure out exactly the gases that are there. Now, there have been spectrometers on, on Mars before. There are still some orbiting Mars. Why is this one different? So this is the first one that's actually targeted to look at these gas components in the atmosphere in such detail. There's never been a spectrometer, a set of spectrometers like this at such high resolution uh, that can, can look in such fidelity uh, at the wavelength of sunlight that's being reflected or being transmitted through the atmosphere. So we have a UV spectrometer, a UV invisible spectrometer, which is going to look at the kind of uh, the, the light we're more familiar with, so the, the sunlight we can see from the sun with our eyes, and also two infrared channels which look at the longer wavelength, uh, the, the, the redder, the redder wavelengths which we can't see with our eyes, but which are used also for different gases. Now each of these wavelength ranges has a different uh, set of gases that can be detected. And by, 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 by constructing these instruments, which have been dedicated to, to, to figuring out the presence of gases like methane, etc., uh, we could, we, we'll be able to map these things in, in unprecedented detail. And methane's the key one, isn't it? Because it's either geologically produced, uh, hydrothermal reactions in the mantle, or the, one, the reason that most people are more interested in, it could be as a result of simple microbes, life of some sort. Yeah, it's a it's a controversial gas. Let's let's say that um, it, it really has no right to be there. Uh, we shouldn't really be seeing it there. And the fact that we are, uh, regardless of where it's come from, is interesting in itself. Uh, it, it, it has a very short lifetime in the Martian atmosphere. So the fact that we're seeing it and the fact that we're seeing it vary tells us there's something active going on. It's coming from somewhere. Um, it should either be mixed to a very low level in the atmosphere or destroyed by sunlight very rapidly, you know, over hundreds of years. So the fact that we're seeing it is controversial. And then the association of, of, of life is obviously the other controversy. Um, it, it, it sparks the interest. It makes people think, oh, oh hold on. Maybe there is. Maybe it's not only coming from somewhere active, but it's coming from somewhere very interesting as well. So, as you said, there there are abiotic, um, non-biological methods this gas could be produced by geology, geological processes. But you know, on Earth, the majority of this gas in the atmosphere comes from biological activity. So, it gets us starting to think about Mars and could there be, you know, could this be a signature for the presence, past or present, of life? Now, it's quite an exciting mission. It, it, you know, you've got a few months until it, it lands. How did you feel when the, it was reported shortly after the launch that part of the upper stage had exploded shortly after releasing ExoMars on, it, on its journey? I mean, unfortunately, the spacecraft wasn't damaged, but it was a bit of a surprise to me. How did you feel knowing that you've spent all this time, you know, building an instrument, working with your co-PI who's based in Belgium and, and that, oh, my goodness, it could have all just gone? It made me incredibly happy because <laughs> it didn't go and we survived and we are healthy and everything is working. So um, 
but the, yeah, obviously the first reaction is is kind of wow, um, near miss, you know, um, <laughs> car accident averted by the last minute. Uh, in hindsight, watching watching it back, we didn't find out about this until a lot later. Obviously, um, it was reported. Not officially, actually. It was something, you know, that was passed around as as a, as a as a item in a news story, which came around the team eventually. So it was an interesting read. Um, <laughs> on a, on you make you spit out your cornflakes over breakfast. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, what's interesting, actually, that it was, you know, we, we know this because of amateur observation, because of observations uh, from the ground of, of, of the, the orbiter um, departing Earth. So it's, it, well, in a way, it's... It's nice to know, in a way, well, we're working, we're on our way to Mars, so past is past, history is history, and we need to move on and move forward, I guess. <laughs> now, the, the the first big event is due in, what, October, when you've got the release of the, the lander down to the surface. And I mean, I'm intrigued you, but you've been talking about the, the atmosphere of Mars. I mean, give us a sense of, of what that's actually like i mean you know the, the word tenuous is often used but this lander has got to get through it and you are looking through it all the time but it's not like our atmosphere the reason we're interested in, in mars's atmosphere is because it's so similar and so different at the same time to, to the atmosphere here on earth we see a lot of weather similar to, to earth uh, we see a lot of dynamics and movement of the atmosphere which we're very familiar with on earth uh, we see a lot of features like clouds that remind us of what we see on earth at a very basic level, it is also very different. It's purely CO2. It's also very thin. And I think this is the most important thing is that the pressure is so much lower on Mars that you have a very thin atmosphere. And this causes a, a whole host of problems, especially for trying to land on Mars. This is a reason there have been so many failed attempts uh, to get to Mars as opposed to many of the other planets. Is because if you if you have a thick atmosphere it's pretty it's easy, it's much easier to land because you can slow yourself down from the very high velocities quite easily using the atmosphere as a buffer if you have no atmosphere it's fairly easy to land because there's nothing stopping you and you can control your descent very uh, easily when you have a little bit of atmosphere it gets very complicated so with mars we have a very thin atmosphere 6 millibars you know a, a, a fraction of what we have on earth which is about 1000 millibars and it's just enough to cause problems so you can get winds you can get um a variation in the atmosphere, it can vary in pressure between, you know, 6 and 10 millibar quite easily. So you have a lot of unknowns. And when you're when you're hurtling at the atmosphere, at, you know, very, very fast velocities. Isn't it about 27,000 kilometres? I'm trying to remember that from something I wrote about it. I know it was yeah. phenomenally. Yeah, fast. exactly. And you've got to get from that to kind of half a metre per second over the course of an atmosphere that's only about 100 kilometres in size and very thin. So it gets very difficult. Um so trying to do that is is, is hair-raising. Uh, Europe's actually never done it before as well. So, so no pressure. <laughs> so, so no pressure. Uh, we do know that we potentially got there with Beagle 2. And many scientists here worked at the Open University were working on that mission. Yeah, exactly. And, and I actually began my career uh, doing a PhD for an instrument on that too. So that the, uh, we, we think we got there with Beagle 2, and op- but it just didn't open up properly. That um, must make you feel great though, wasn't it? Because it was so associated with a failure. But actually, your instrument is there and probably is in perfect working order. Yes, uh, that it was certainly a um, a lot of perceptions changed. I think when that announcement was made, and as you say, it turned from a, a British failure into into again a massive uh, success story, which is which is what it has been all along. 
yeah, trying to trying to prove that we can get to the surface of Mars safely now and operate is, is something Europe needs to do ahead of the next mission, which is going to put a rover on the surface. So we really need to um, to prove that capability. I've just noticed your lanyard that's holding your Open University badge says failure is not an option on it. Is that is that your mantra for this mission? It's also a NASA lanyard. <laughs> I'm not sure ESA are going to be pleased with this. No, I wear it with pride. It's from a conference uh, in the US uh, that called LPSE that we go to quite often. And, uh, you know, obligatory trip to, to the, the space centre there in, in Houston. Failure, it definitely is not an option. And that's one of the things in space research is... Yeah, it takes a certain mindset. You spend 10 years of your career working on something and then you gamble it all on a moment when you you, you place it on top of a huge rocket filled with very explosive uh, chemicals. And yeah, if it fails, that's bad. That's a big waste (laughs) of time for you. So failure is certainly not an option. But also, I think it represents that you don't give up. And if it does blow up, if something does go wrong, if your instrument does die, you carry on and um, you keep going back until you, you learn what you can do, which is the aim of science and it's, it's what scientists have to do. Well, we're going to head to another NASA facility now, NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and the flattest floor in the world. It's actually called the Flat Floor Facility, a giant warehouse covered in a black, polished, perfectly flat floor. It was developed to test spacecraft docking systems and works like a giant air hockey table, although imagine the puck has the jet of air rather than the table itself. Before we talk about the mission it's being used for right now, let's go for a quick tour. Our guide on the space sofa is senior engineer Tom Bryan. This is actually an air-bearing bench, and uh, we like to give a lot of demonstrations with people, but we even use it to move equipment around in the lab, because when I flip down this blue handle, you're now floating. <laughs> so we're floating off the floor That's on a, little, what, a cushion of air. On about four thousandths of an uh, inch gap, air gap, okay? So that's a little bit thinner than printer paper and so uh, most of this floor out here 95 percent of it is varies no more than the thickness of printer paper in height so that means that with just a small fingertip i can move all three of you (laughs) this is great and now once you start moving you'll keep on moving so we don't stop until you hit something and that's the whole. That's why you've done this for space. So exactly, that, it's exactly the same as in space. You've moved something; it just keeps going. Yes, we can't move up and down, but we can move in all the other dimensions. And what's really nice is that uh, I will stop you for just a moment, and if you put up your hand and push against me, you are now a <laughs> so I'm pushing away. That's exactly what Isaac Newton said. That's great. This floor does all of the three properties that Sir Isaac uh, predicted. And because of that, it's the best thing we have in a small room to doing in outer space. And you're floating quite nicely. And if I spin you up, you'll keep spinning until I slow you down. And in fact, that's what that spacecraft simulator is, is we're now looking not just at satellites and going to station but trying to pick up older satellites that may not be stable and that need help 
And so what we're looking at is being able to, we call them tumbling satellites, and be able to grab a hold of them and move them. You could sell the rides on this. It's great. It's kind of weird. It does feel like we're floating. That's why we'd like to put a coin box right here and just have everybody <laughs> put in a, a, a quarter or so whenever they fly. But more importantly, we did get uh, the administrators and the deputy administrators' signature, and we hope to start collecting a lot of uh, signatures here. So that's Charlie Bolton's uh, yes, signature on the... here in December. And this is Deva, who was here to make the announcement about the secondary payloads. We have seen the evolution of a lot of technology. And this whole facility was built to develop a way of moving things around in space. And now it's kind of exciting to see that we're working on technology that will allow us to go well beyond the moon and go to an asteroid without using any kind of fuel. It, it's just amazing to me. There's uh, Leslie here who's working on um, NEA scale. And it's quite relaxing, isn't it, Leslie? It's it really is, yes. It's, so this is... You're sitting cross-legged. You've got the whole <laughs> thing going on here. I just kind of jumped on your ride because I enjoy it. <laughs> now, if you had a fan, you could blow yourself across the facility. <laughs> In fact, that's what we use for these spacecraft simulators. What you're seeing back behind here is one of our largest aircraft, I mean, our air spacecraft simulators. And uh, uh, it's had a lot of different jobs, but the last job it really did was trying to figure out how the big Ares 1X, how it was going to move when it was out on the pad. Because once it was out there, we actually have to physically put our hands on all of these rockets to do such things as load the fuel in the top or turn on and off the self-destruct systems. And so uh, we found out that there wasn't any standard for how a launch vehicle that big, had how much it could move relative to the tower. So we had to build it and simulate it. And that's one of the things that we can do with air bearing. It was so good that we had somebody come and watch it for a few minutes and then move away because they were getting motion sickness from watching it. It was so realistic. We get to do a lot of very interesting work in this lab. Tom Bryan taking me for a ride on a space sofa. The reason I was in the flat floor facility was to meet the team behind NASA's latest asteroid mission. Called Near-Earth Asteroid, NEA Scout, it'll be launched as a secondary payload on the first test flight in 2018 of the Space Launch System, SLS. Now, the SLS is around the size of a Saturn V rocket, but NEA Scout is a CubeSat not much bigger than a shoebox. To reach its target asteroid, NEA Scout will be powered by a giant solar sail being tested in the flat floor facility. I spoke first about the mission to Les Johnson, technical advisor for NASA's Advanced Concepts Office. We're going to be using uh, sunlight pressure reflecting off the sail. If you think about light as a uh, particle, it has momentum even if it doesn't have rest mass. So when you get in space, if you deploy a big lightweight structure like a sail and reflect light from it, the light will push on it and give it a little bit of an acceleration. 
And with luck and the sun shining at our backs over time, that acceleration adds up and you can, you can build up quite a bit of speed. So we're going to be using this as a propulsion system for a small spacecraft. And a very small spacecraft with enormous solar sail to study an asteroid. Well, that's right. The Near-Earth Asteroid Scout Project, the whole purpose is to demonstrate a new capability, and that is, is twofold. Well, three, really. One is the solar sail, which is the propulsion system. It's going to be packaged into a, what's called a 6U CubeSat, which is a 10-centimeter by 20-centimeter by 30-centimeter box. So it's about the size of a boot box. And this 86-square-meter sail will be deployed from that, and the capability is the sail as a propulsion system, the fact that we can put all this into a small CubeSat and fly it into interplanetary space and use that capability to do reconnaissance of an asteroid. Now, Leslie McNutt, you're the project manager for this mission, and this is going to launch on the first mission of the space launch system, so this giant new rocket, this Saturn V-sized rocket. It's a really unique opportunity for CubeSats, so CubeSats don't typically get to leave Earth orbit, so we are very thankful that we're going to get to hitch a ride on this first launch, and so this will kick us out um, in between Earth and the moon so we can start our mission there. That's amazing. So this rocket's heading for the moon, and it's going to put the Orion capsule take it round the moon. You're going to be pinged off sort of midway between the two. Yes. That's quite an ambitious project, for a CubeSat mission alone, and then to have this solar sail, this new technology as well. We're a fully functioning spacecraft in this very small box. I mean, think of it as the most complicated game of Tetris that you have ever played, getting everything in a boot box. Now, Tiffany Lockett, that's all your responsibility, isn't it? You're the lead (laughs) systems engineer for the solar sail. Uh, We've got a solar sail in this this room, in this Mm -hmm. flat floor. Um, I guess it's a little over two stories high, billowing away Mm -hmm. behind us in this Mm -hmm. gentle breeze. That's only a fraction of the size of the real thing. That's correct. So this is actually a 42% scale of what we're actually going to be flying. So what you're seeing behind me is 36 square meters. We use this as a development sail. We wanted to really understand how our packaging scheme was going to work. And then also, how are we going to deploy this out? So with this, we were kind of using a unique a concept called a bow tie. And the idea was that you Z-fold, which is just accordion fold coming in from both sides, meeting in the middle, and then you spool it in the center. And when you deploy, it literally looks like a bow tie. And that was the easiest um, way that we could package it into a small volume and get as much sail as we could um, because our total sail is going to be 86 square meters. And for 86, 86 square, square meters. meters. I mean, the one here is, is billowing away, this giant silver sheet. Yeah. And yet you're fitting it into a box, a yeah. box size, something yeah. like that. Actually, slightly it's, bigger, it's, slightly it's bigger. It's quite smaller. It's about um, maybe about a, a third of that shoebox. That's what the sail is going to fit into. And that's possible? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so what we've been doing is over the past several months, we have been kind of just scaling up in preparation for our full-scale testing. We'll be testing in the spring and doing full-scale deployments. And with this sale that you have here in the fall, we just did some test deployments. It took six hours and five engineers continuously to fold this sail. And what we're learning about is the material itself, it's a polyimid, it's a really thin plastic sheet that's aluminized. That's what gives it its nice shiny coating. You've got a bit of the material in your hand. It's like... Well, I suppose it looks like tinfoil superficially, yes. but clearly it's not. Is it like... Can I touch it? Yeah. Is it all right? 
it's really fine. Mm-hmm. It, and it's... Is it like the third sort of blankets when you, you know, when you don't run like, a marathon? Not that I've run a marathon, yeah. but those sort of things that you wrap yeah. around someone. This is basically if you just take one layer of it, it's very similar. So a polyamide is just a really thin um, elastic plastic that you can put into sheets evenly. And what they do is they vapor deposit aluminum on top, and that's where you get that aluminum coating. And so in total, that's only 2.5 microns in thickness. People have talked about, you know, just using off-the-shelf technology in CubeSats, but you're talking about an interplanetary mission or a mission leaving the Earth-Moon system using a solar sail in a, in a CubeSat. Well, I mean, CubeSats have been evolving since the beginning, getting more complex, being able to last longer, do more things, and this is really just the next logical step. They've really changed, uh, I hate to overuse the term, they changed the paradigm of, of low-cost missions in Earth orbit. It's time to take that beyond. We're just pushing the envelope, taking that next logical step. And what's the next logical step with solar sail technology? I mean, they've been tried in, in low Earth orbit, and I think one's gone beyond low Earth orbit, but this is still quite a new technology. Well, it, we're a capability demonstration, and so after we fly and we're successful, I could see sending more Neo Scout like spacecraft to scout out other asteroids. But what I'd like to see us do is go to the next larger sail. Uh, get a lighter weight material, lighter weight booms. Uh, the booms we're using here are actually fairly heavy. They're steel. We'd like to see us use some composite booms, which are about half the weight or less, which allows you to have a more higher performance sail, potentially a bigger sail, and do that for some solar physics missions and for deeper exploration into the solar system, kind of expand their range of operation. Could you use them for a crewed spaceship, or is there just no point? There's no, no well, reason to do that. Well, the solar sails are really most useful for really small, lightweight spacecraft. And in fact, if, if someone were to ask me, what's the big enabling technology for Neo Scout, I probably wouldn't say the sail. I would say it's the development of CubeSats, because what that's enabled is a really small mass, which is small enough for a solar sail to actually move places efficiently. So I don't see solar sails being for people anytime soon, like maybe never. But I can see them carrying cargo, and I can see them carrying robotic spacecraft. You could use it for sort of supply ships to Mars or something like that if you, if you had a, some sort of permanent settlement. In, in the far future, if you have a permanent settlement there and you're not worried about uh, the time it takes for any particular delivery, but you just want to have a steady flow of materials, oh, I could see great big sails carrying cargo as a steady stream of supplies going between the planets. But that's a dream right now. Les Johnson, Leslie McNutt and Tiffany Lockett between them leading NASA's NEA Scout or NEA Scout team using a solar sail to reach an asteroid. Do you see yourself ever working with solar sails at all? Probably not the solar sails, uh, which is, I guess, a bit more of a system system side. But, um, you know, well, they, they've, I can see they're going to have a huge application in the future coupled to things like CubeSats because... We know about the solar sails and we've known about them for a while and the technology is now enabling it. And, and CubeSats, are, there's always been a problem that spacecraft have always been too too large for solar sails, really, as, 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 as mentioned in the clip. But now with the advent of CubeSats, that, that's starting to change and there's, we're seeing a more, much more of an opportunity for application there now. You're looking to the future now for other missions and an asteroid one is potentially one that you might be interested in. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, the European Space Agency have a call for future missions coming up soon this year. And one of the ones I'm involved in is to do with exploring the asteroid belt, one of the last kind of frontiers that, that, that we haven't explored properly yet. So we, we've obviously been to Mars many times. 
and our understanding has developed a lot there. But the asteroid belt is certainly an area that we haven't explored in depth, in deep, in great detail. And Apart from on Star Wars. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. And that's what we're planning to do, fly around and land inside and get, almost get eaten by huge space worms, etc. Uh, no, um, what, we're, what we're planning is a very... Um, from an orbital mechanics perspective, an, an ambitious mission to, to go uh, fly in and out of the, the asteroid belt and survey lots of different asteroids, look at them with uh, spectrometers, again, following on from some of the technology from ExoMars and using that technology to then apply it to elsewhere in the solar system and go look at these these fantastically mysterious objects that sit between you know uh, Mars and Jupiter and, and figure out what, what's going on there. Still to come, we'll go inside NASA's Space Station Science Control Room to meet the woman who talks to the Tims. This is Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. Hello, Greya here from Naked Astronomy. I wanted to say hey and tell you about my new podcast. It's an awesome audio adventure into the big black cosmos that we inhabit. What's out there? How did it all begin? And what will happen in the end? Presented and produced by yours truly, you can find it on most podcasting platforms. Just search Naked Astronomy. Do get in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter because we'd love to hear from you. Now, we're heading back to Huntsville, Alabama now and another little-known NASA facility, the control room responsible for overseeing science on the International Space Station. And this is where Richard met payload operations director Corey Olson. Now, we're overlooking the Payload Operations Integration Centre, which sounds more boring than it actually is. What goes on in here? It's a room full of consoles and people, very much like a you know, typical space control room with big screens along one side. You've got the flags of all the nations of the space station on the ceiling. That's actually my favourite feature and always has been is the flags along the ceiling because it's a good reminder that this is an international effort every day. What we do here, I, I would say that we are um, a remote part of Mission Control Houston, but we have our own mission, which is to enable all the science, research, and technology development that's being done on the, the utilization of the space station, the reason it's in orbit. We have literally researchers all over the world, and they command and interact with their hardware, their their scientific experiments, their crew members, through us, both through voice and command to the vehicle, and telemetry comes down from the vehicle. Our data management coordinator makes sure that they get all their data, all their video down. All the commanding to their assets on board is through here also. In conjunction with Houston and all the other control centers, ESA uh, and JAXA and, and Russia around the world, we come up with the uh, cruise schedule for every day and um, make sure that all the resources are in place for all the things that are going on, not only the things the crew is doing, but a whole lot of science happens from the ground. You know, we have nine external payloads. You know, we have, we're shooting lasers at the atmosphere to study the aerosols in the, in the atmosphere, to, you know, in relation to climate change and, and things like that. So, I mean, there's all kinds of science going on, not just what the crew is personally doing at the moment. So, so how does this work in practice? So on a daily basis, say you're dealing with Tim Peake on mm-hmm. the station and he's got a day of science ahead of him or day of bits and pieces he's got to do. How does that work in practice? What do you do? 
We share the same viewing tool for the schedule, um, and we uplink it to them, any changes at the end of each day. So they can look the night before and see what's coming up. We send them last-minute reminders. Sometimes they get like a morning newspaper of, here's the gotchas to look out for today, just little reminders. And then also we have a a time scheduled to talk to them in the morning to to coordinate about anything we need to do. Uh, A lot of the procedures might have steps built in that say, when you get to this spot, call us because we got something we got to tell you. Or when you get to this step, we need you to read off this data from the screen and tell us. We also have the ability to enable a scientist directly onto space or ground. So instead of our PACOM, a professional communicator talking to them, we can enable that scientist. And like one of the experiments we've been doing recently is um, called BASS, and it's burning and suppression of solids. It's looking at how things burn in space and how to put them out and testing a lot of flame retardant things. Well, it's a very hands-on experiment, and actually the crew love it. They actually love it. So Tim Copra has been doing it for us, and I think Tim Peake's really interested and has been watching him, so he wants to be trained on it too. And, and that's good if you have two crewmen that are really good at the same experiment because you can swap them out. But in that experiment, we'll have the, the uh, scientists talking them, to them all day because they're giving feedback. Oh, that looks good. Can you move that a little bit? You know, oh, try it this way. You know, so that kind of moment by moment. So some days we may only talk to them four or five times. Other times, it's almost like a constant stream of communication. It just kind of depends on what's going on that day. So. You do have a Tim problem at the moment. Yes, Unusually, you have two Tims yeah, on the station. That... How do you get around that? <laughs> well, co- when they're working together, we refer to them collectively as the Tims. Um, I'm sure they love that. But we, we do have to specify. Normally, we're a first-name basis kind of operation. And uh, and even a nickname basis kind of operation. But um, we have to be a little more specific with two of the f- same first name right now. But uh, like I said, when they call us, we always know which one it is because one has a lovely British accent and one does not. And what do they like to work with the astronauts? I mean, do they get frustrated with you sometimes? <laughs> do you get frustrated with them? I mean, is there, a, is there ever a friction? Oh, like any humans working in close contact, and it's hard to think of it as close contact when they're 400 kilometers above your head, but um, it is close contact, and it's amazing how much you come to know them. And yes, we they do get frustrated, <laughs> but that's just a point for learning. A lot of times it's because we didn't make something particularly clear or they misinterpreted. So we try to iron those things out because if it's something you're going to do over and over again, especially the next time it can run a lot smoother once you get their feedback. One thing I'll say about the about the Tims, you know, we had gotten very used to uh, Chell and Kamiya, and they um, were a well-oiled machine, and it's like, oh, no, they're so efficient. Why do they have to go home? And then, and then we get Tim and Tim, and, I mean, by week two, they're just blowing the doors off of it. They like to rise early. They hit things. I mean, sometimes before the morning conference, we see they've done a bunch of stuff because – the thing about our schedule is they can click on it when they've finished it and it turns gray. So you can watch as they go through the day and they complete things. And so a lot of mornings you're just getting started and they've already knocked off two or three things off the plan. And it's like, yes. <laughs> so they, they've hit their stride at this point. So they're, um, they're doing great. They're really easy to work with. Now, one of the desks here, you've got the payloads ops director, that's where you you sit, Mm -hmm. you've got safety, you've got ops lead, various other things. There's one here that says stowage. Mm -hmm. What's that all about? What's stowage? Stowage may be the most important person in the room. That is the poor soul who has to try to keep up with every bit of equipment that we use. 
and they work closely with a person in Houston called ISO, and I assume the other control centers also have such a counterpart. They're, they work in the planning aspect of figuring out, okay, we have this activity on Friday. It's going to need this set of equipment. Where does all that live? we got to go find it. And we give the crew a, what we call a stowage note. It tells them, here's all the stuff you need, and here's where we believe it is. <laughs> and, and so it's always interesting when they can't find it. Um, then we usually try to carry an alternate location or its last known location, you know, or it's like who was that, the last person that touched it. That's kind of terrifying. That's like if you put, lose your keys somewhere but lose your keys in somewhere where they don't stay. If you put them down, they don't stay down. It's like I'm they could be anywhere. I'm your keys in your house from America. Keys that don't stay on a shelf that could right. float anywhere around right. the house. And that often happens. Uh, another thing is we usually follow the crew by video during the day when they have we'll have onboard video and sometimes they're working on something and someone on the ground sees something go flying off and if it's us or Houston or whoever will say uh Scott we just saw your wrench float off oh and you see him go off and you go get it you know but we can't always see it and um when they do housekeeping because that's what they do on the weekends just like we do sometimes they find things in screens and filters and Sometimes we find things years later in the back of a rack when we've had to pull it out for some reason for maintenance. Like, oh, that's where that CD is or whatever. Find all, I mean, it's like moving out. If you pull out your refrigerator, you're going to find some stuff. So it's the same thing on board, except, except it's even more likely because things float off. Payload Operations Director Corey Olson in the Payload Operations Integration Center in Huntsville, Alabama. Why they couldn't call it like Cool Control Room or Space Station Control Room or something like that. Payload Operations Integration Center doesn't even work as an acronym. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll have more from Huntsville, the Space Launch System and the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, which is the reason I was in that part of the world. And we'll have all that over the coming months on Space Boffins and on BBC Radio 4. Watch our Facebook page and we'll tell you more details. Thank you very much to our guest here at the Open University, Dr Manish Patel. And um, I believe ExoMars is not just a professional job for you. It's uh, helped you... Meet your future wife. <laughs> well, my existing wife. Uh, uh, I met Rachel working on. Yeah, that on, sounded uh, odd, didn't it? Wife, yeah, yes. That's like your, sec- your second wife, Rachel. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I, I met Rachel working on Nomad, and uh, yeah, we got together, and and after you know, after a couple of years, now we have we have a couple of kids, and we're very happy. So. You didn't call the children Phobos and Deimos. <laughs> it was discussed. <laughs> Unfortunately, no, we didn't. <laughs> Probably just as well for them. So, so far, all looking good, though, for the landing on Mars. Where will you be for that? Uh, I'll be at ESOC at the European Mission Control. Uh, yeah, everything is looking good. We are on trajectory. Uh, we have our first near-Earth commissioning coming up where they will turn on the instruments. We'll be going there to hear... Whether or not our instrument's woken up, it's kind of like our child's first words, really. We're, we're waiting to hear with bated breath whether everything's OK. But everything's on course and we're set to go for October. Well, so are we. Uh, good luck indeed. Space Boffins is a Boffin Media production in partnership with the Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and the Royal Astronomical Society. We've been Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson, and as we're talking Mars landings, I think we'll end with the first successful landing on the Red Planet, Viking 1, almost 40 years ago in July 1976. Now we're coming down, straight down. Nav is green for touchdown. ACS is green, 1.5 degrees per second max, 0.2 Gs. Feet per 